Welcome to Liberty Chats, produced by members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council. Thank you for joining us. We talk to a variety of experts, leaders, journalists, and policymakers about our nation's founding principles, why they are still so relevant and essential to preserving freedom for everyone, what specific challenges and threats they face today, and how those founding principles best safeguard and empower everyone's ability, young and old, to attain prosperity and personal happiness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Liberty Chats. My name is Dominique Clemens, a member of Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council. The Steamboat Institute is a conservative organization dedicated to promoting the values of freedom, liberty, and civil dialogue. Today, our guest is Erica Donalds. Erica Donalds is the Chief Executive Officer of Optima Ed, an education experience company dedicated to expanding high-quality school choice. A mother of three boys and former finance executive with a passion for education, she has offered her expertise in business to help further the expansion of parental choice and to improve accountability and governance in Florida's public schools. Erica is also a former elected member of the Collier County School Board, which we'll definitely dive into. During her tenure, she co-founded the Florida Coalition of Schools, school board members, and served as the group's president. She was appointed to Florida's 2017-2018 Constitution Revision Commission by then Speaker of the House Richard Corcoran and recently served on Governor DeSantis's Advisory Committee on Education and Workforce Development. Erica now serves on the Florida Gulf Coast University Board of Trustees and on advisory boards for Classical Learning Test, Moms for Liberty, and the Independent Women's Forum Education Freedom Center. Erica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really excited to dive into your journey into education. Um, So my first question really is what sparked your passion for education? Well, I think originally it's just the fact that education was my ticket out of poverty. I grew up in a single parent home. My husband did as well. And both of us were able to pay our own way through college and get great jobs, have great careers and be financially independent, which is, you know, the goal for everyone. So we were able to change our trajectory in life through education. And that's what made us passionate to give our kids even better opportunities for their uh, educational journey. So our kids, we have three boys. uh, They went into the education system where we thought just buying a house in the right neighborhood was all you needed to do to get a student a great education. But we find out that with three very different children, they all learn differently, just like all children do, that we needed to find different options for each of them. And it sparked my interest in not just education itself, but the ideal education for each individual child and how parents can have access to that. That's awesome. It's such an inspiring story. And as a mother, you were um, encouraged to go onto the school board. Tell me a little bit about that experience uh, and what were your key takeaways? Well, I had started a parent advocacy group uh, called Parents Rock, where we were attending school board meetings and advocating for the view of parents. At the time, there were no parents on our school board, no parents of school-age children anyway. And so we felt like they were really out of touch with what was actually going on in the classrooms. So I kind of pulled the short straw out of our group and decided to run for school board to represent our interests. 
And I thought that that would be a great way to effectuate change in the public schools. I had helped start a charter school in our community. I knew that there were lots of parents out there that wanted more choice or they wanted changes made in the traditional system that was more catering to individual needs of students. But I found that the education bureaucracy is virtually immovable. It will not reform itself. And I really became an advocate for school choice because of my experience on the school board and realizing that a free market of universal school choice options for families, allowing parents to vote with their feet and for the money to follow the child is really the only path towards education reform and accountability, transparency, and accessibility for all students. Mm -hmm. So after being on the school board uh, for four years, what happened next? Well, I decided not to run again. That was a really difficult decision because there were a lot of people who supported me on the school board and who liked having a voice, but it wasn't enough for me to just have a voice. I felt like I was pounding the table for four years and not really accomplishing much. So I decided to start an organization called the Optima Foundation that would help open more schools of choice for families. And we opened our first school in 2019 after two years of work. I finished my school board um, term in 2018, and we've opened a school a year ever since. So I kind of used my experience on the school board and then also my background in business put those two together to help run these schools, uh, operate them efficiently, and also allow for the autonomy of our educators to do what they do best, treating them like professionals, giving them great training and great resources to be able to serve the needs of students. That's amazing. And tell me about the classical schools that you've opened. Did you ever imagine that the demand would be so great from parents? I actually didn't when I first learned about classical education, which was when my middle son was in first grade and I needed something different for him. I discovered a very small classical Christian school and had no idea that there was a demand for this because it didn't seem like anyone was looking for it. But when I helped to start a Hillsdale College charter school in my community, which was going to be free, tuition free, we opened with over 400 students and over 400 on a waiting list. And that's what drove me um, to realize that there is a lot more demand for this than I anticipated. I had no idea it was going to blow up the way that it has. Uh, classical education, liberal arts has really caught on since then. More people know about it. There are more offerings out there uh, to the point where this last school we opened, Naples Classical Academy in 2021, we were planning on about 750 spots, but with over 3,000 applications for those spots, we expanded and opened with just under 1,000. And now we're seeing that demand continue to explode as more and more people learn about this type of education. So for those who aren't as familiar with classical education, what would you say are some of the key differences between a classical school and a, pub a traditional public government-run school? The classical liberal arts education is knowledge and content rich. And that means that everything that our students are learning is uh, based in you know, historical facts, uh, information that they can use in the future, cultural literacy, as it's called. So we're giving students a basis of knowledge about all types of things, including poetry and, and fables and stories, things that they can draw upon in the future as they're reading and understanding things and problem solving. It also centers around the great books, classic literature, things that have stood the test of time as being true, good, and beautiful. A lot of the modern books 
we don't know whether they're good or not. We know books are great when they've been around for 100 years and people are still reading them, right? So we depend on that. And then our students will read a lot of source documents like the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, um, the Magna Carta, and they'll actually study what those uh, people said when they founded the country or, or when they wrote these documents. And they can start to decide for themselves instead of someone editorializing about those events. In the lower grades, we do explicit phonics and explicit grammar, which means di diagramming sentences, which is kind of a lost art. We teach the students cursive. It's a very traditional back to basics education. And most important thing that sets it apart is that it is also virtue based, that everything that we're doing is also centered around the core virtues that we that we teach, whether it's courage or service or um, self-government. And we tie those things into the curriculum as well. So if they're learning about a character in history or a character in a classic literature or a scientist, we're also tying in the virtues that make great citizens, make great people. So it's a phenomenal curriculum. Um, teachers love to teach it because they know that they're teaching something of substance and of value. And a lot of times they're learning themselves. And it does create a scholarly environment that's unlike what you see in traditional public schools. I love that the center of the model is really education and discovery and learning versus what we see in public schools is this focus on standards and mastery and tests. And that's, I think, a huge difference, too, with with classical schools is uh, depth of knowledge. So tell me a little bit about innovation. I hear a lot that, you know, public schools are constantly, they want to bring in these innovative, um, you know, models, whether it's through charter schools or whatnot, private schools. Um, but you've made the case that charters, that classical schools are actually innovative because they're doing what um, the public schools aren't doing. Uh, so if you could just touch on that a little bit and about kind of your definition of innovation. Right. Yeah, we've had to defend the classical model when it comes to applying for grants or even our charter applications. How is what you're doing innovative? And, you know, we look around and go, no one else is doing this right now. And classical schools are outperforming traditional public schools in a lot of the areas where they're located. So they must be doing something different and something right. Um, instead of using screens uh, across the board from kindergarten to 12th grade, we actually don't have electronics or devices in our classrooms. We think that they're a distraction and we go back to the sort of analog way of annotating uh, paper books and taking notes and making outlines by hand. Uh, studies say that that improves retention. So the innovation is really stripping away the things that modern progressive education has added that haven't worked. And so we're, we're innovating the current model by going back to what worked for really thousands of years before the progressive education took over. So tell me about um, COVID and how, how uh, were your schools able to open and thrive in the midst of COVID? I know you had one school that was built in 2021 and we, um, you know, we still had a long waiting list for that. Uh, but, but what are some of the things that came out for OptimaEd? Well, COVID has kind of defined the launch of our company. We opened our first school in 2019, which means we our very first year of our very first school was interrupted by COVID at spring break. 
Our second school opened in the middle of the pandemic in August of 2020. And then by the time our third school opened, Omicron was raging and we had 15 to 20% of our people out for the first couple of months of school. So COVID has really impacted us. Um, Not to mention that we went from having no screens, no electronics to everybody needs a computer and we have to digitize our entire program back in 2020. But we didn't even think twice. We tried to replicate the in-person experience for our students that were home as much as possible. We gave them an eight to three school day. We gave them live learning every day. We sent home books and materials that they would need to get the full learning experience on a daily basis. And we didn't look around to see what other people were doing. We assumed that everyone else was going to the same lengths as we were to make sure the students didn't fall behind. But as we did end up seeing what other people had done, it was disappointing that we were able to really provide a high quality uh, experience for our learners, even though they were at home and really tried to give them a schedule that did not impact the parents as much. And the districts and many private schools even didn't do that. And so we had parents calling us wanting to participate in our online program for the entire time that we offered it through December of uh, 2020. Wow. And so tell me a little bit about how just the different aspects of how Optima Ed was uh, defined. Tell me a little bit about as well the virtual reality component. Well, we got such great feedback from our online program. I started looking at virtual education in general. What does the industry look like? And I found that before the pandemic, the industry was growing exponentially. But all the studies that I saw said that virtual learning was substandard and was low quality. So it didn't make sense. It's a low quality product that's growing leaps and bounds. Well, clearly parents were choosing this method because of the delivery and not because of the quality of the curriculum. And I thought, well, we've been doing a high quality online curriculum for the past nine months. We should just continue this, create a a virtual school out of it and give this as another public option where people can receive a high quality classical education. So we embarked on that journey of of kind of productizing, if you will, our virtual program that we had done during COVID. I was introduced to Adam Mangana, who's my partner now in Optima Ed, who had been studying virtual reality education for the better part of a decade, but who also has a degree in the classics and understands classical education. Um, We merged these two visions of having a high quality virtual program and virtual reality school, virtual reality instruction, and created Optima Classical Academy, which is now the world's first VR school, launching tomorrow actually with grades three to eight (laughs) in Florida. We have a lab school and we're also now talking to a lot of other districts and schools about how they can incorporate virtual reality experiences into their own schools into their own curriculum. That's amazing. So I want to kind of dive into maybe some frequently asked questions or, you know, virtual reality is something that's new. And especially when people hear the metaverse, they get a lot of questions and concerns. Um, So my first question is, how are the students socialized? It's a great question because people who put on a VR headset 
uh, in an arcade or sometimes in an experience, you're on a roller coaster or you're on some sort of an on-rails experience and it's not a social experience. But the latest in technology allows for a social experience in VR, sort of like some of the new games do where you're playing with friends and you can talk to them and interact with them. You can do that in our VR classrooms. So these students feel like they're in a VR classroom or they're in a traditional classroom is what it looks like. They are with their teacher and they are with their their friends, their fellow students. They can talk to one another. They can answer questions by the teacher. But they can also leave that classroom and teleport to the moon or to Independence Hall or to the White House or just outdoors when they're studying science and nature. And so not only do they have the experience of being together uh, and be able to work in groups, collaborate with one another, answer questions of the teacher, et cetera, but then they also can take that classroom experience and experience something that um, is amazing and, and engaging along with their fellow classmates and their and their teacher. It really has everything that you could possibly want in a classroom experience. So tell me about a typical uh, day for a student. Are they in the headset all day or, or how does that work? That's the number one question is how long are they in the headset? And our live learning happens from eight to 12, four days a week. And it's in 20 to 30 minute increments with breaks in between, depending on the age of the children. And it's only used if you're doing actual live instruction or you're uh, doing a 3D model or something that can only be done in the VR. So we're not trying to replace paper books. We're not trying to replace doing math by hand. All of those things occur at the second half of the school day. We're trying to create a mix of experiences that is ideal for the children. So you have that live learning and interaction with your teacher and fellow classmates. You have those VR experiences that send home all of the the learning and the knowledge that we're trying to impart. But then you're also going to read paper books. You're also going to go outside and and gather materials or do experiments and explore. Um, You're also going to do some virtual learning on Canvas, on our learning management system. And it's not a one way of learning throughout the school day. It's going to be very engaging for kids because they have different ways of both learning as well as interacting with their peers and their teacher. And how would you say this is different or or a better option than Zoom school, which is what we saw during the pandemic or other forms of virtual education? Zoom school is extremely distracting both for the teacher and for the student, right? The student can open separate tabs. They can be playing uh, roadblocks on their second tab while their teacher's talking on the Zoom tab. And and there's the entire environment that they're in that could be very distracting. And for the teachers, they're looking at 25 different classrooms where each and every student is in their own individual classroom that the teacher cannot control. In the VR classroom, they're all in one classroom. They can only see each other and what's going on in that classroom. And the teacher has a lot more control over the class and has all of their attention in the VR classroom, just like in a traditional classroom where a teacher can have ultimate control over what the students are doing and what they're looking at, but actually even better because in VR, she can sit them all down (laughs) with the touch of a button and lock them in their seats. Teachers do like that uh, feature. (laughs) And so you are still teaching a classical curriculum inside the virtual headset in the virtual reality. So how do you combat maybe some of the questions you get from the classical uh, folks that are really focused on, you know, they'll talk about uh, the cave analogy and, and different things like that. How do you 
how do you express, you know, is this a classical model in its core? And that's a question we get a lot. And I'm not trying to replace a brick and mortar classical school. I do think that ideally being in a brick and mortar classical school is the number one choice if you have it. But like I mentioned earlier, we have 2,500 students on our waiting list that don't have that option, not to mention all of the communities who are constantly reaching out to us who don't have a classical model available in their community at all. Um, So I think that the VR classroom, for some students, it's actually the best thing for them because I know out of my three kids, one of them did great at home. He just did better going at his own pace, not having the distraction of the classroom. And I think there are going to be kids that are like that. But aside from that, if a student has no other classical option and their other choice is either a progressive in-person school or a progressive virtual school, this is far superior because they're not only going to get that live instruction from a master teacher, they are going to get that knowledge-rich education and those virtue-based uh, um, virtues, virtue-based virtues, I love that, um, but they are going to get those virtues as well. And they're going to learn the true history of our country. They're going to learn the history of the world that makes America the greatest country the world has ever known. It is going to be the gold standard of virtual education. And it's going to be offered to those who will never have access to a brick and mortar version of this. So I think that the classical community should really embrace these innovations and find ways to continue to enhance it and make it even more like the in-person classical learning experience. That's fantastic. And I'm I'm super excited to hear how Optima Classical Academy does in its first year of operation. So switching gears just a little bit as we're wrapping up, um, I know that you've been involved in the school choice movement for many years before Optima Ed or before the virtual reality came to fruition. So tell me a little bit about why school choice is so important. Well, as I stated, I learned on the school board that the system is not going to reform itself. And I, I do believe in the free markets. I, being a business person, I'm just a believer in free market economics and that a, a school choice environment where every single parent has the money and the ability to choose a school that works best for their child is going to give rise to so many different creative and innovative options. Every family is going to have multiple choices that are going to work well for their child. And a rising tide will lift all boats. So it will increase access. It will increase quality. And it will increase innovation in the education arena. And that's what we need. This K-12 monopoly, this public school system that America has been running on, it's not working. We're continuously falling behind the rest of the world. And America is the most innovative country in the world. How is it that education looks exactly the same as it did 100 years ago? It makes absolutely no sense that we do it this way. We would never design a school system if we were doing it from scratch today. So I want to see universal ESAs pass in every state, uh, including Florida this year. We're going to be fighting really hard for that and allow the options, the innovations that the free market provides to flourish in the field of education. Awesome. And on that note, what action items or advice would you leave the listeners with today? Lobby your legislators for universal education savings accounts or education scholarship accounts. So ESAs has been the mantra. Arizona just passed a universal choice program. West Virginia did as well. They're getting uh, sued over it. Hopefully they will prevail. Florida, I hope, is the next one up to do universal ESAs. This is the way of the future. Uh, There's a lot of political capital out there being used to expand charter schools or increase funding or teacher pay or fight unions. And 
I really believe that all of those education problems are solved with universal choice and allowing the free market to dictate the quality and access of, of options out there. And it's great for teachers too. You know, we have a huge teacher shortage across the country. People are leaving the profession. They're not coming back. And the way that we get the best minds in the world to enter into American education is, is to allow the free market to pay them what they're worth based on their merits um, and really open up the marketplace to allow for innovations that allow the best teachers to reach more and more students. Again, Erica, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Again, my name is Dominique Clemens, a member of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council, speaking with Erica Donalds, the founder and CEO of Optima Ed. Thank you so much for listening. I wanna be free. I wanna be free. Wanna be free. Yeah.